This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today's guest is retired Brigadier General Colleen McGuire. General McGuire retired from the United States Army in 2012 after an illustrious 32-year career in which the Missoula native and UM graduate accomplished many firsts. She was the first woman to hold the Army's highest law enforcement office, Provost Marshal General, and the first woman to head the Army's premier felony investigative arm, the Criminal Investigation Command. She's taken fire in combat and led critical work on sexual assault and mental health in the military. I really felt that after 32 years, I wanted to come back home. You know, it's funny, I left Montana, I was 23, and I wanted to go out and see the world, and I did. And then I spent 25 years trying to get back to Montana. Colleen now describes herself as a rancher, explorer, outdoors enthusiast, and curiosity aficionado. And she splits time between her home in Kalispell and her ranch in Eastern Oregon. General McGuire, thanks for coming on the show today. It's a mouthful. It's, I'm, it's Colleen from now on. Thank Colleen. you. Colleen, okay. Well, um, I was actually going to ask, do people just refer to you as general or brigadier general? Like, how do, like there's so many gradations of various ranks. What's, what's the appropriate honorific? You know, I've always been Colleen, but of course the military doesn't permit that. So it's, it was always either ma'am or your rank. And uh, general, even though brigadier general, you're addressed as general. But yes, there's uh, clear levels of general. And I'm at that first level. Well, tell us where you grew up and what did your parents do? I grew up in Missoula, Montana. Right. Yeah. Right near then was Washington grade school, Sentinel High School, and the University of Montana. I just went to all schools here. My father was in the Army Reserves, and Mm -hmm. he also worked at Fort Lewis and uh, was a student here. And my mother worked out of home as well. She was also a student for a short period of time here at the university. And uh, she worked for uh, Dr. Carol and Dr. Bob Ammons right here on campus. And that's where I got a job here that actually helped me get through college. And uh, but then she also worked for the county welfare okay. as well. And so you had two brothers serve in the military as well. Was the uh, you know, service in the military a, a choice right from the start? Because you were an ROT student when you were here. Right. Was that on your radar right from the start? No, not oh, okay. at all. <clears throat> as a matter of fact, I had three brothers that actually, uh, three of my four brothers all served in the military. Oh, super. It was a way of life. It was something to do. And so we grew up around the military. We all grew up polishing dad's boots and the like. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, the military was always an option, and because it was in our family, and his brothers also served uh, in the Navy and the Air Force and the Army as well. So, yes, it's it's in the blood. Pardon me for being stereotypical, but you know, during your time here, you're active in your sororities, on the cheerleading squad, um, studied TV production. These are the sorts of things that, that like predict a different type of career than 32 right. years in the, right. in, in the Army. Talk about the decision to enter, uh, enter into, the, into the military after graduation. Oh, it has to start back uh, when I was in high school. Okay. Uh, when I 
was about to graduate from Sentinel. I knew that I was going to come to the University of Montana. I had received an, uh, a scholarship through the Montana Broadcasters Association, which got my foot in the door at the university. That helped tremendously. So I was also looking for another avenue, another money stream. Sure. So I was looking, well, why not the Army Reserve? So I enlisted in the Army Reserves when I was still a senior in high school. And uh, that summer before I started school here at the university, I went to South Carolina for basic training at Fort Jackson, and I found that I loved it. Mm. <laughs> I really did like the regiment, and I liked uh, living in a different part of the country, and I enjoyed a different uh, group of people, and so I enjoyed it. Came back to here and went to school, and then my junior year of uh, college is when I transferred my reserve obligation to ROTC. Okay. And so I didn't join ROTC until my junior year and then I knew that when I graduated I would for sure have a job sure. right yeah this is the late 70s and yeah. so we're it's a different economy and so I wanted to be in have a guaranteed employment but also to be honest I want a little adventure as well yeah and so that's that's what got me into the military and um, yeah and fairly early on, you got into the the police side of the military. Is that right? Right. So Talk about who, that choice. who would have thought, having a degree in broadcast journalism, right, <laughs> that all of a sudden I'd want to go into law enforcement? Looking at all the different fields, the opportunity to get into broadcast journalism type of arena really was in the Navy and the Air Force had a good program in terms of public affairs. Mm -hmm. In the Army, they too have a very good program, public affairs, but you can't enter into it until you've already been in the military for about five, six years. Okay. So um, I wanted to do something a little more exciting. And back then, combat arms uh, fields, infantry and armor were closed to women. Right. But military police was also one of those that was currently open to women um, and had more of a combat role, not your typical law enforcement. It had that as well. I, I think that the physical aspects of, uh, you know, the law enforcement and combat support really appealed to me. So that's why I went law enforcement. Talk about your experience um, with military law enforcement. You rose through the ranks. You describe, you know, this choice as one that um, was one of the few sort of close to combat type right. of experiences open mm -hmm. to women. And, and you rose through the ranks into roles that women had not occupied before. Talk about some of those experiences. When you said about your career, um, regardless, you know, military, wherever, in the civilian arena, business arena, whatever, I didn't set out to to break any class ceilings. You know, yeah. I am going to try to go do this, and I want to uh, challenge myself and do this. I just did the job, the Army sent me to. Mm -hmm. I was 23 years old. Now I'm a platoon leader in charge of 40 men, no women, 40 men that were all about my age or older, and I'm their boss. From there, then, I did go to a law enforcement assignment in Darmstadt, and um, I bounced all over from, like you said, I, I did my physical security, I did law enforcement, and then I also did combat support. And that uh, another field that kind of surprised me about the time I was promoted to lieutenant colonel and was now looking for a battalion command position, um, which, of course, you know, you don't have a choice in. They, you know, direct, this is where you're going to go. Mm -hmm. You can make a request. It doesn't mean you're going to get it. Yeah. 
And in my case, I made requests for other organizations than the one that I got, and that was uh, with a the United States Disciplinary Barracks is the battalion commander for our military prison. And I had never worked in <laughs> in, in prisons or, or anything. And again, I felt like back to that first assignment that I had, it was leadership all over again at the graduate level now, um, working with soldiers who had to look over and care for our inmates. Gosh, and so talk about that work environment. I mean, you're leading a team, but you're also overseeing folks that have, you know, lost their way and and and, and made bad choices and done, you know, a, a wide range of, of bad things. Talk about that experience. It's it's daunting. It, yeah. it, certainly, I was again another first, the first woman to command the battalion, and then about uh, several years later, I came back to Leavenworth and commanded the prison proper. My focus was always take care of the soldiers. Mm -hmm. That's a tough job. It really is. It's a thankless job. I really do admire, even in our state and federal facilities, those guards, those jailers, those people that ensure that the rules are followed inside the prison. So my focus was always on the soldiers because I figured if the soldiers were doing their job properly, then the inmates were being well cared for. Very interesting in the military prison environment compared to your federal, state, county, you know, local, is that every single one of your inmates are co- are, are, are high school graduates. Okay. Because yep. they had to all have passed the muster in order to join the military. Sure. And so they're all very bright, uh, all very smart, ambitious, and that too is very dangerous in terms of the games inmates play. A lot is said about the military, probably mostly by people that don't know what they're talking Mm -hmm. about. But there's a lot of hot takes about how it functions as a bureaucracy and as a meritocracy. You advanced through this system in in kind of a a pioneering way into roles that women had not occupied before in a way that most members of the military, regardless of gender, race or whatever, haven't advanced to. Talk about that system of meritocracy and bureaucracy? You know, it's been 10 years since I left the military. And uh, I can still honestly say, you know, sometimes when you think back on things, you know, you now have a different perspective. Mm -hmm. But I can honestly say uh, the process works. I find it is as fair as fair can get. Were there opportunities that weren't offered to me, let's say, because I was a woman? Oh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> yes, there was. Uh, you know, that's another whole discussion. But did I think that I always had a fair shake? Yes, hmm. you bet. I, I thought that I, I, the doors were open to me. I never felt as though they were closed uh, unless policy or law closed those for me. Um, and those were always changing. I mean, mm-hmm. look at now. I mean, the number of four-star generals we have um, look, uh, that are women. Look at uh, the different fields that women are in now. They're all, you know, now you can be in special forces, yeah. for heaven's sake, infantry. Um, if you can prove your merit, then you should be able to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Well, they've ponied up. It's, it's. Um, I, I think the military does give you the opportunities if you're willing to work hard. And yes, make sacrifices. And so one of the things that is remarkable is that operational effectiveness carries over from political regime to political regime. 
in many ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, mm-hmm. and in 32 years, I mean, you serve for Democrats or you for bet. Republicans. Like, talk about that experience and how, you know, in some ways the military stays out of politics, but in other ways it's it's an arm of politics. Talk about that relationship. It's very clear to a soldier. Mm-hmm. Uh, the president is the commander in chief. And so for me growing up, it really, the only time that it made a difference in terms of what political party the president was in, he was always our commander in chief, was usually through fiscal policies. And it was when I was at the Pentagon is where you really have that power of influence. And yeah. that's when, you know, we, we were talking about the meritocracy. Let's talk a little bit about the bureaucracy. Sure. So at least a third of my career, 10 years, was in the, in the Pentagon, mm-hmm. in, in the Washington, D.C. area. Not only is it a, fun, a fascinating building, but we've kind of personified that place, you know, so it's now got its own identity, the Pentagon. You really, as an individual, can really make a difference and influence. And one of the ways I did that was through working uh, with the Army Suicide Prevention Task Force and how just the work that my team did under the leadership of General uh, Pete Corelli, who was the vice uh, chief of staff at the time, we were really able to at least identify some of the issues that soldiers were going through that was contributing to the speed of suicides and Mm self-harm that we were seeing. That at the time, uh, because the the way that we monitor and track self-harm and suicides and the like is that it is particularly in the military, but the Army in particular, um, CID is the sole investigator. CID, define uh, that The first. Criminal Investigation Command. Okay. Uh, it was, the CID is actually Criminal Investigation Division, but it's actually the command. And they investigate all unattended deaths. So it had a standard of investigation. And reporting was within days. Now you look at the whole United States, and the Army came under a lot of scrutiny because, you know, why are we sending all of our, you know, our treasure to you, and they're killing themselves, or they're dying, or self-harm, and the like, what are you doing to them? And we kept on trying to say, we're just a microcosm of the United States. It's out there as well. Oh, no, you know, you have so many more suicides going on in the Army. Well, now fast forward several years, 10, 15 years, we now all recognize that there is just a problem with with suicide and, and self-harm. And one of the discoveries we made was the comorbidities that come with multiple diagnoses, but also multiple pharmaceutical solutions. Sure. Okay. Um, hence the opioid. Drug interactions. You and bet. Self-treatment and, and other things bet. like that. And the opioids, you know, that whole, we, we cracked the code on that one as well. And so uh, a lot of our um, medical processing now and in paperwork and records has changed because of that study. It was in the work that we did. A lot of things have come of it to include what were some of the variables that were affecting our soldiers? Well, one, poor diet. Sure. Uh, and, and no sleep. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the 
readily available opioids. Yep. So all of those combined with a protracted war. We'll be back to our conversation with Colleen McGuire after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. This is Marty Mornhenweg, and you're listening to A New Angle. Go Grizz! Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with retired United States Army Brigadier General and native Montanan, Colleen McGuire. Yeah, I mean, longer periods of war than we'd ever experienced. And deployments. deployments. And you bet. And so just that period of time that I was in the Pentagon from about my my last tour there that started in 2008, I had just come off of an 18-month deployment to Iraq and then was assigned to the Pentagon Mm -hmm. and then was assigned to look at this this concern that the leadership had about our soldiers. So from 2008 till 2012, when I left the military, a lot of a lot of work was done and a lot of changes were made. Yeah, and so maybe talk about how some of those changes have, have maybe come to fruition. I mean, we hear a lot of reporting about mm-hmm. you know how well we do by our vets. You bet. Yeah. What What are your thoughts on that? Are you willing to talk about that a little bit? I'm going to harken back to uh, the uh, Vietnam War a little bit and our well-deserved veterans that um, never got the recognition when they came home and the horrors that they had to deal with uh, there in Vietnam and then coming home and dealing with a whole different set of horrors Mm -hmm. that we didn't really fully appreciate, understand, or admit mental health issues. And what came of and defined now is PTSD or PTS. And I think now we have all accepted that and we have the means to deal with that. Now we're looking at other remedies and recognition uh, when we see somebody that isn't just quite themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We're not opposed to giving them some time off. Maybe send them to a wellness clinic or facility, uh, learning how to do meditation. Uh, there's now an appreciation of yoga. I mean, sure. think back back in the 70s, while yoga was really big and um, the, in the 60s, you know, started sure. all of that, it was just, that was like counterculture. And right? all this other baggage oh, attached yeah. to it. Oh, right? yeah. oh Soft and yeah. yeah. You bet. And now soldiers engage in that, yeah. you know, to some degree. I mean, there's now a greater appreciation of different means of dealing with pain, physical, right. mental, and how they interact and are manifest with each other, you know. Yeah, I mean, physical. at the end of the day, yeah. it's about execution and decision making. Right. right. And whatever can contribute to better execution, better decision making, you got to support right. that. And let's look at our diet, you know. Let's yeah. let's let's cut out all those packaged things. Here's another one for you too. I was a single parent the entire yeah. time I was in yeah. the military. That was unheard of. So, in fact, uh, often challenged that, you know, I could never say, well, I've got to, you know, pick up my child from daycare. You never said that. Um, You made arrangements to make sure that your child was taken care of. But if you needed to work 24 hours, like I did one time, um, uh, and it was was 
my poor daughter, who was only two at the time, was passed from friend to friend to friend while I had to work unexpectedly when we uh, invaded Grenada. So Operation Just Cause. And I was working at the Pentagon as a young captain, and uh, they said, well, we need you to take the Army Operations Center. You've got to pull a shift down there, like in, you know, 20 minutes, and you're going to be there for the next 12 hours. Wow. Well, I had a near infant child I had to take care of. So I'm making telephone calls to thank God the Army family is the family that it is. And so they all took care of my daughter while I had to do that. So So you mentioned you retired from the military in 2012. And is that the point at which you went to go work for Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel? Good friend of mine, uh, General Dave Patton, who was assigned uh, working for at the Secretary of Defense at the okay. time, recommended that I be part of the military response to sexual right. uh, assault in the military. And so I was a pan- with a panel of women. I was the only law enforcement perspective. Most of it was legal. That was over the course of several years that we went through a series of um, discussions and testimonies from women to, to look at you know, um, the military response. It was a great opportunity to still be able to influence and be a part of at least discovering what was going on in terms of the response to sexual assault. I would argue from a, uh, from the law enforcement perspective, it's pretty, it's pretty rock solid. I mean, everything can be improved upon. But I felt confident, particularly within the criminal investigators uh, of the Army, that they were well-trained and prepared to deal with sexual assault. So let's talk a little bit about the time since you've retired. Moved back to Montana. You've been here, what, about six years, living up in Kalispell and splitting time with a a ranch out in eastern Oregon. What's what's retirement (laughs) been like for you? So... Ah, retirement. It's been busier than I think than when I was <laughs> active duty military. The decision to retire was was hard for me, but you know, it, it came, I wanted to leave on a high, and it was a high. At the time, I was working for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. We had a sit down chat about, really, why are you retiring? You know, hmm. <laughs> you're, you you're got in, more to do. Yeah, you got more to do. And um, I really felt that after 32 years, I wanted to come back home. You know, it's funny, I left Montana as 23, and I wanted to go out and see the world, and I did. And then I spent 25 years trying to get back to Montana. Right. Okay, saw the world. I know what's good. I uh-huh. want to come back home. And you have grandchildren. I have too. grandchildren. Uh, I have. Uh, so my daughter made the choice for me where I was going to live. Uh, I was looking to come back to Missoula, but when my daughter and her family live in Kalispell, mm-hmm. definitely wanted to head up north. And uh, I and I love the community. It is again, it's the playground, you know. And uh, and I'm still very active in bicycling and hiking and skiing and downhill and cross country and all of the the fun outdoor Montana stuff we do. Your LinkedIn profile, you described uh-huh. yourself as a curiosity aficionado. Oh, that, you first saw of all, that. that's like a fantastic turn of phrase. But, but what does it mean to you to be a curiosity oh. aficionado? Oh, everything from early morning uh, reading the news, and especially, you know, I read the news like most everybody now anymore on the internet, right? Mm-hmm. And then I start spiraling into these <laughs> rabbit holes because that's really interesting. Yeah. I am curious about everything and anything, and I get that definitely from my father. I mean, if it's not 
uh, amateur astronomy. I'm also a ham radio operator. I like to sew, knit, all those type of things. I'm renovating a house. I, I, I have my hands in all sorts of things right now. And of course, ranching. Right. Why Tell not? us about that. So uh, I was in Iraq and my deputy at the time asked me what I was going to do when I grew up. <laughs> and uh, I really did not have a good retirement plan, so to speak. I just knew that I had been fiscally diligent throughout my career, and I knew that I didn't have to work if I didn't want to. And so I wanted to um, just, uh, I said, oh, I was going to travel and spend time with my family. And he said, yeah, well, that's going to last about three months. Then what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> and uh so I started a ranch with him. Okay. And so uh, I started a ranch in eastern Oregon where my partner and his wife and family, they've already uh, had started a, a ranch. And so I started out there with them. And I've got me, I've uh, my little ranch. Uh, it's a little over 200 acres, about 100 cow-calf pair. And we run an Angus uh, cow-calf operation. Yeah. Commercial herd. That mm -hmm. must be something to it is. get out there and just hey, engage in an entirely new experience. I was a Missoula city girl, yeah. really. You yeah. know, I mean, yeah. yes, I loved outdoors and I do all of that, but I was not a rancher. I have learned, again, I have learned so much, you know. I just, uh, constant learning um, inspires me and, and just learning how to run an operation like that is has been really fun. It's made me poor. <laughs> <laughs> Not really, but it's uh, it's uh, it, it it takes a lot of time, a lot of energy, and um, but I enjoy it, and I think it's a great way for me to pass on to my grandchildren also the culture of what the West is all about. Super. Well, we started this conversation yeah. with some you know questions for me about titles. And we have to have another conversation about that. You recently awarded an honorary doctorate at fall commencement here at the University of Montana. So should we call you general, doctor? Like, what, what, what do you prefer? <laughs> Colleen. Okay. <laughs> like well, we said in the beginning, with... we'll stick with that. What an honor. I was really quite surprised. And I don't really, to this day, know how that came about. I mean, University of Montana has been such a huge part of my life. I'm amazed by the what the university is doing. I'm so encouraged by it. It has changed so much. And my father laments, being a Vietnam-era veteran, that um, he wished he had had the same experience that, that I had and am having and that the students today are having on campus compared to what he had. It is, it is so much more hopeful here on campus since his time. I just, I'm just surprised by it. I really am. And it is a huge honor. And, and it says a lot about the university in how they recognize accomplishments of not only their um, alumni, but the fact that it's a recognition of what I did while in the military is, geez, it's a, it's a 180 turn from the reputation that the university, whether deserved or not, had in the late 60s. Hmm. Yeah, know? yeah. Well, I feel like I've personally benefited from your service <laughs> in so many ways, Colleen. It's been an honor <laughs> to you. meet you, spend some time with you, and thanks so much for sharing your, your story and insights with our listeners. It was an honor. Thank you very much.
Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. AJ Williams is our producer. BTO, Jeff Amet, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.